All right, so we are continuing our study in soteriology. Uh, soteriology is the study of salvation from the Greek word soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about. And we have just completed a three-part series where we have looked at the role of God the Father concerning our salvation, the role of God the Son, and the role of God the Holy Spirit. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking uh, specifically at the suffering, the crucifixion, and the death of Christ. And this should be a very interesting time of study. Let's go ahead and jump into this, and I will be chasing down lots of scripture references as usual. Uh, and I'll be going off the notes. Uh, I will send out a PDF version of the notes uh, after I finish editing tonight's audio lesson and get that uploaded to the podcast. I'll send out that hyperlink. That way you'll have that. All right. So when God the Son added perfect humanity to himself... This enabled him to experience suffering and death with and on behalf of humanity. Now, when we talk about God the Son adding perfect humanity to himself, we spent a night, we talked about the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which teaches that at a point in time, nearly 2,000 years ago, God the Son added humanity to himself. He, he added humanity. And we talked about the virgin conception and how the Holy Spirit was involved in that. We looked at Luke chapter 1 and how Jesus was conceived supernaturally in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And because Jesus did not have a biological father, uh, Joseph was not his biological father. He was his legal father, but not his biological father. Uh, but because Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus uh, could come into this world minus Adam's original sin, and he also had no sin nature. And he went his entire life, and he committed no sin. And he went to the cross, and he died. And he did not die for his sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was righteous. Uh, but when he went to the cross, he died a death he did not deserve. But he died in our place. First Peter 3.18 tells us the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so when we talk about these things, when I reference these things, it harkens back to previous studies where we've uh, addressed some of this. So when God the Son added perfect humanity to himself, uh, this enabled him to experience suffering and death with and on behalf of humanity. Now, the suffering of Christ may be viewed in at least two ways. First was his suffering during his time on earth prior to the cross. And then there was the suffering of the cross itself. Now, as the God-man, uh, Jesus was perfectly holy in all his thoughts, words, and actions. And such perfect holiness brought with it a special form of suffering in this world that the rest of us could never know since we are capable of yielding to the pressures of sinful temptation. Now, when the time of his death was nearing, when the time of his death was nearing, and we're talking about three plus years uh, after his time of ministry, because he ministered on the earth uh, for just over three years, and as the time of his death was nearing, Jesus told his disciples, and we can think of in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, this was the first time he had communicated this to the disciples. And of course, we know Peter uh, in the next verse, he didn't like what Jesus had to say. And so we have this uh, famous account where it says, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. <laughs> now, Peter is a believer, uh, but he's out of line here. And he's seeking to correct the Lord. Think of it. Uh, it's I just I shake my head uh, because he says, God forbid it, Lord. I mean, it might as well be saying, God forbid it, God. Uh, this shall never happen to you. And so for a brief moment, Peter, as a believer, is briefly an enemy of the cross. Uh, he's actually trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He doesn't like what Jesus has to say here. And so he says, this shall never happen to you. Now, he doesn't understand uh, the implication. And of course, the Lord rebukes him. And, uh, and sometimes a believer can be out of line. Uh, and in this case, Peter was out of line. And of course, the Lord rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And, uh, and of course, when he says, get behind me, Satan, the word Satan there translates the Greek noun satanos, which means adversary or opponent. Now, it could be that uh, Jesus was referring to Peter as an adversary at this moment, as an opponent, and he was using it in that way. Uh, I generally think, and lean this way, that it was actually speaking to the satanic activity behind Peter's words. So even though he's talking to Peter, he's looking at Peter, uh, he's addressing Satan, who I believe is behind Peter in this situation. Uh, can't be dogmatic on that, but uh, but that's kind of where my thoughts go. But getting back to our passage in Mark, Matthew 16, 21. So it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, that he must uh, go to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he is going to suffer many things. Now, it's noteworthy that Jesus saying that Jesus said that his suffering, dying, and resurrection were things that must happen to him, that must happen to him. And the word must there translates the Greek verb day, D-E-I. It, it translates the Greek verb day, which here denotes divine necessity. In other words, it was a divine necessity. It was the Father's will that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. And once he was there, he was going to suffer many things. Now, we're going to unpack this. We're going to talk about the trial of Jesus. We'll probably spend a whole night talking about the trial of Jesus and how he faced six illegal trials in one night, uh, probably from midnight to maybe about 6 a.m. Three of them were religious and three of them were civil. And we're going to see how uh, people were brought in to lie on his behalf and how the religious leaders uh, all found him guilty. Of course, they, they found him guilty before they even brought him in to try him. Uh, but this should have never happened. It was all illegal. It was never should have never taken place during the night. That's illegal. And uh, and then Her and then uh, a pilot uh, sees and recognizes that Jesus is innocent, and he tries to get him released. But Pilate proves himself a weak leader in that he caves to the demands 
of the uh, mob that was shouting, crucify him. Uh, so these are the things that we're going to look at. We're going to unpack part of what it meant when him with him suffering from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and being killed. But again, when we think of this, what Jesus is saying here, because Jesus is framing it from the divine perspective. He's framing it from the divine perspective. And so here, when he uses this Greek verb day, here it, devote, it denotes, again, divine necessity, which meant that it was the will of God the Father that these things happen to Christ. Now, Thomas Constable, and I have a quote here from him, and by the way, if you ever get a chance to chase down his notes, he has a commentary on all 66 books of the Bible, and they're free. It's online. It's quite wonderful. Uh, but I like Constable. He's a, he's a very solid uh, Bible teacher. But Thomas Constable notes, he says, quote, Jesus said that it was necessary, and here parenthetically he puts in the Greek word day, uh, but Jesus said that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. He had to do this because it was God's will for Messiah to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. He had to do these things to fulfill prophecy, end quote. And of course, there he parenthetically puts in Isaiah 53. Now, we spent a whole night uh, working through Isaiah 53 a few months ago, if you remember. Uh, now, going on in the notes here, the absolute necessity of Jesus' death on the cross further emphasizes our helplessness to save ourselves. Uh, for if we could save, for if our salvation could have been secured by any other means, then the death of Christ would have been unnecessary. And so we must understand that Christ going to the cross, again, was a necessary thing, was a necessary act. Now, while in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to God the Father, and we think of in Matthew 26, 39, uh, where he said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Uh, end quote. And here we see the humanity of Christ on display. Now, remember when we spent the night talking about the doctrine of the hypostatic union, we looked at those passages that point to the deity of Christ. We look at John 1.1, John 1.14, John 1.18, John 20.28. 20, we looked at a bunch of passages that point clearly to the deity of Christ in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, ego of me, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Yahweh. Uh, we saw his claims to deity. It was very clear, very straightforward. Hebrews 1.8, uh, of, the, uh, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever. Clear, clear as day, clear statements. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. But we also looked at those passages uh, that pointed to his humanity, where Jesus got hungry, Jesus got thirsty, uh, where Jesus, got, you know, he got tired. Uh, well, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't get thirsty. And so we looked at those passages that pointed to the humanity of Christ. And when we when we see certain passages, we say, oh, well, that's emphasizing his divine nature, uh, his divinity. And then we look at other passages and we say, oh, well, that's emphasizing his humanity. Well, when you're looking at this passage in Matthew 26, 39, it's emphasizing his humanity. Uh and so he's praying here. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And you can see here in his humanity, he's struggling. He knows what he's about to face. And we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking in the next few weeks 
the details of the crucifixion. And I tried to give enough information in the study notes, and you can read ahead on this because everybody has gotten has received a copy of the notes. Uh, but I tried to give sufficient information to show that what Jesus is going to face uh, isn't just the trials. He's going to he's going to he's going to deal with mockings. The Roman soldiers are going to beat him in the face. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be publicly humiliated. He's going to have to carry a cross or a portion of his cross to Golgotha, to the Hill of the Skull. And he's going to be crucified. He's going to be mocked even while he was on the cross. I mean, he's going to go through a tremendous amount. And Jesus, eyes wide open, he knows. He knows what he's walking into. And remember in John 10, 10, you know, he said, uh, you know, I lay down my life. And in John 10, 18, and no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. So he's willingly going to the cross. Nobody forced him. And so he's willingly going to the cross. But one understands also that he's struggling here. And one can clearly understand because he knows what he is about to face. And then there's the cross itself, where from noon to three, when the sky grows dark and, and all of the sins of humanity are placed upon him. And for and during that time, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and that's really the big issue. That's, that's really the big issue. Because remember that Isaiah 52 tells us that as a lamb is silent before his shearers, so will the Son of Man be. And so he goes before these beatings, these mockings, the twisting of the crown of thorns upon his head, and, and even the, the nailing upon the cross, and he doesn't cry out until our sins are placed upon him. And that's, that's, that's the high point. That's the point in which he cries out to the Father. And so he knows what he's facing here. He knows the struggle. And so we're going to talk about some of this. And I've tried to, uh, I've communicated some of this in the notes without going into too much gory detail, because it, it, there's some really graphic depictions out there if you, uh, if you really study this through and through. Uh, but he's struggling here. And when he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, that's a complete reversal of what happened back in the Garden of Eden. Because if you remember in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were faced with doing the will of God or the will of Satan, uh, they, in effect, said to God, not your will be done, but my will be done. And in effect, they set their will against the will of God. And, and really, that's really at the heart of sin. If you really want to get to the heart of sin, that's really what it is. It's when the creature sets his will against the will of God. Now, that first started... Uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve, because remember the first sin that took place took place in heaven, and it took place before uh, Adam and Eve sinned. The first rebellion that took place took place in heaven uh, by a creature, an angel of the class of cherubim by the name of Lucifer, and he set his will against the will of God, and you can read about that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We've covered this in past lessons. But he led a rebellion, and a third of the angels, roughly, from what we can approximate, followed him in his rebellion. And so the first sin that took place in heaven by a creature, an angel, again, by the name of Lucifer. So by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, sin is already in the creation. It's already in the universe. And there is already a creature that has set its will against the will of God. And then Satan comes in, and he recruits He's wanting to expand his kingdom of darkness, so he recruits the first humans, Adam and Eve, to set their will against the will of God. And so he 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 flat out contradicts God. He says, "No, uh, you will not die if you eat of the fruit." And of course, they uh, they follow Satan's advice, and so they yield themselves to him, and they eat the forbidden fruit. 
But in effect, what they were doing as the first Adam, and even though they both sinned, ultimately the responsibility fell upon Adam because God set him up to be the spiritual leader in 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 the marriage, in the family, and that's how that's supposed to fly. Uh, and so even though Eve sinned first, Adam was the one who really was the responsible party. And that's why Romans 5.12 says, for by one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And that's why Jesus is called the last Adam. Because you think of the first Adam who failed, and he's the federal and seminal head of the human race. He represents the human race. And as goes Adam, so goes the human race. We fell with him when he fell. And that's why his original sin is transmitted uh, to every one of his descendants, minus Jesus. Jesus is the exception. But Jesus is called the last Adam. And Jesus faced temptations by Satan as well, but he passed the test. He did not yield to that. And, and so here in the garden is, is the big challenge. And we can see him struggling. And he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so here we see him in his humanity. We see him struggling understanding the scope of what it meant and the agony associated with it and Jesus even prayed a second time saying my father if this if this can if this cannot pass away unless i drink it notice again your will be done and uh, and he's he's in submission here he's in submission to the will of the father now the reference to the cup here speaks to the speaks to the uh speaks to of the suffering of the cross that's what it speaks of now john whitmer uh, who is one of the contributors for uh, the book called Understanding Christian Theology. I think he's also one of the contributors for the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is a pretty good set. I have a quote here from Whitmer. He says, quote, In the Old Testament, a cup sometimes symbolized wrath. And so Jesus was aware that his coming death meant that he would bear the wrath of God the Father against sin. Though Christ had no sin... He bore the sins of the world on himself. Thus, he was made a curse for us because of his being hanged on a tree, end quote. And, uh, and of course, one of the passages we're going to look at is 1 Peter 2.24. Let me not get ahead of myself, though, here. I'll chase too many rabbit trails. Now, while on the cross, while on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We think of uh, that quote there from Matthew 27, 46. Now, this was the cry of Jesus from his humanity. From his humanity. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 24, that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And the cross is where he bore our sins. It was during his time when he hung between heaven and earth that God the Father took all of our sins and placed them upon Christ. And he was judged there. Uh, and he bore the punishment for our sin in our place. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin on our behalf. That refers to the doctrine of imputations. We're going to spend some time here in the near future. I've been working ahead on my notes. I'm up to about 160 pages now. Uh, so I'm about halfway done with this project, this writing project. But I've just recently finished some notes that have to do with the doctrine of imputation. We're going to spend probably a night or two on the doctrine of imputations. Uh, something that is generally not taught 
But one of the most important doctrines uh, that one can study uh, in the field of theology, and we're going to spend some really good time on that. That's uh, going to be very, very helpful, I think. So again, Peter tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, Peter's reference to Jesus' body indicates humanity, not deity. Let me be very clear here. Sin cannot be imputed to deity. Sin cannot be imputed to deity. Humanity can bear sin. And it was while Jesus was on the cross that he bore the wrath of the Father as he died in our place and bore the punishment that rightfully belongs to us. And the Spirit, we know, sustained Jesus' humanity while he bore our sins. We talked about that some while back as well. Uh, because we know that the Spirit sustained him in his humanity. He was supernaturally sustained. Uh, Robert G. Gramacki, I think I'm saying his last name right, and here I'm uh, citing him from the book Understanding Christian Theology, which, by the way, if you don't have that book, I do recommend that, Understanding Christian Theology. And uh, the chief editors by that uh, are going to be uh, Chuck Swindoll and I think Zuck, Roy B. Zuck. Uh, but it's a multi-author work. But if you get a chance to pick it up, it's a good single volume uh, theology, and I really recommend it. It's a good, uh, it's a good, good work. It's very scholarly, but it's very easy to read. And uh, so, anyway, Robert G. Gramacki states: He says, "Quote: God the Son incarnate suffered and died. The Father did not suffer and die, nor did the Holy Spirit suffer and die, even though He filled Christ." when the Savior suffered and died, end quote. Now, the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross was salvific, as Jesus was made sin, made, uh, again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to be sin on our behalf. And, of course, Mark wrote, uh, in Mark 15, 33 and 34, it says, when the sixth hour came. Now, you have to interpret this uh, from the time and the culture within which it was written. Uh, so the uh, sixth hour here would have been noontime, would have been noontime. You see, we operate by the Gregorian calendar, where, time, where the new day starts at midnight, but the day for them started uh, when the sun is rising. So here we have the sixth hour. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So him is when he was being judged for our sin. Now concerning this moment, on the cross, uh, Whitmer states, he says, it was at the quote, it was at this time as Jesus bore the sin of the world that, that God, the judge of sin, turned away from Jesus Christ, uh, his incarnate son, the sin bearer, as far as the personal consciousness of Jesus was concerned, end quote. Now, this gets to be a little bit tricky at work here, for God the Father could not forsake God the Son. Uh, we must understand this, that God the Father could not forsake God the Son, as a separation within the Trinity is not possible. Yet somehow the humanity of Christ, again, not his deity, 
this humanity was forsaken at the time of the judgment on the cross. Otherwise, the words of Jesus would be meaningless. But Jesus' suffering and death did happen, and it was his time on the cross that brought our salvation, a salvation that is applied at the moment that is applied to us at the moment that we trust Christ as our Savior. Uh, and that's one of the things that we'll talk about too, because we'll talk about the subject of the atonement. Now, uh, there's two major views uh, regarding the atonement. There are some who hold to what is called limited atonement, in which they believe that Christ died only for the elect. This is typical of the Reformed theologians, of uh, uh, Calvinists, um, not entirely, because there are some who do hold to unlimited atonement. But uh, the Bible teaches unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everyone. Now, the death of Christ is sufficient for all. It is sufficient for all, but it is effective only to those who believe. In other words, the benefits of the cross are only applied to those who actually trust Christ as Savior. And so we'll talk about that in the future, too. See, I'm, I'm trying to give a preview of coming attractions, uh, just to kind of let you know where we're going to be going in the weeks and months ahead. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus said to the, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, and remember we talked about that too, uh, where he said, was it not necessary, was it not necessary uh, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. And by the way, when he says, was it not necessary, there it also translates the Greek verb day, uh, the same word that was translated must when he said he must go to Jerusalem. It's translated here, it's the same Greek verb day, D-E-I, and here it says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now, in the book of Acts, Luke records that Jesus, in Acts 1-3, presented himself alive after his suffering. And again, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the suffering of Christ. We're talking about the suffering of Christ. We're going to talk about the crucifixion of Christ, which we'll probably get into here in a little bit. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the death of Christ. What did it? What was the impact of his death? And, uh, and we're even going to address the issue of who crucified Jesus, because there's, there's even some controversy around that. But that's all right. We'll get it all straightened out. Uh, but again, here in Acts 1-3, it says uh, that Luke records that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering. So the subject of suffering is brought up uh, throughout uh, the Gospels. And of course, we spent, uh, uh, again, a night talking about Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. Uh, so this is something we've already touched on, and uh, and Peter in Acts three eighteen uh, said the things which God announced beforehand by the by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. And then in Acts seventeen uh, verses two and three, we are told that Paul reasoned from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer, that the Christ had to suffer. Again, this is an ongoing theme that you find throughout, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And so what we're trying, what I'm trying to get at here is just simply to point out that Jesus' suffering and death were necessary. 
from the divine side that this was something that God himself determined uh, was necessary to happen for salvation to be available to humanity. Now, let's go ahead and jump into the subject of the cross and crucifixion. Now, the cross overshadowed the life of Jesus. The cross overshadowed the life of Jesus. By the way, it's been a couple years, but if you ever go back and you ever study the birth of Christ, and it talks about him being wrapped in swaddling clothes, the Greek word for swaddling clothes there, if I remember correctly, is asparginosin, and it actually refers to strips of cloth uh, that one would wrap around a person. And remember that Jesus was placed, quote, in a manger. <laughs> There's questions about that, because uh, in some regions in uh, around Bethlehem and other areas there, uh, there were sometimes caves where animals were stored, and they would carve out a hole in the wall. Uh, and that was the place where they would put animal food and water. And, and, uh, and so the Greek word there, if I remember correctly, is fotne. And so even from the time of the birth of Christ, there could be, I won't be dogmatic here, but there could be some imagery of him being wrapped in these strips of swaddling clothes, the strips of cloth, and then placed inside of this fontanet, which, uh, which could uh, picture uh, the subject of death. Uh, it could very well be a picture of that. So uh, again, this is something where when we, when we think about the cross, it was something that overshadowed the life of Jesus. And he knew that dying for lost sinners was the ultimate purpose of the Father. In John 12, 27, uh, we're told, Jesus said, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. By the way, I want to back up for just a moment here. I want to back up to verse 23. And uh, and we have an interesting statement here. I didn't include the notes, so this is a bit of a rabbit trail. But back in verse 23, uh, Jesus answered and said to them, well, let me back up a little bit more. Um, so we come back here where uh, they're going to Jerusalem. Well, let me back up. It says, now verse 21, it says, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus gives this reply. It says, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, there's been several times prior to this, if you ever study the Gospel of John, you're going to see a few accounts where uh, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And he's he's referencing the hour of the cross is what he's referencing. He's referencing the time when he's going to go to the cross. So there's this is conscious. It's in the mind of Christ throughout his life. He knows what is ultimately coming ahead. And then we get to this point to where he doesn't say to them, my hour has not yet come. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And the hour has come for what? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? To be crucified. That's what he's talking about. 
He's talking about his going to the cross, but notice how he frames it. He doesn't say that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified because he's framing the cross. He, he, he struggles. He's, he, we know this. But at the same time, he's framing the cross from the divine perspective because he knows that ultimately the cross will glorify the Father. And Christ himself says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that has always struck me. It has always fascinated me that he frames it that way. But again, going back to John 12, 27, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. I came to this hour. So he knows what he's facing. Now, for lost sinners, the cross is both personal and purposeful. It is both personal and purposeful. You see, it is purposeful because according to Romans uh, 5, 8, Christ died for us. He died for us. And remember when we talked about Romans 5, 8 a while back and, and when we talked about the subject of the atonement, we looked specifically at two Greek prepositions. We looked at the Greek preposition huper, H-U-P-E-R, uh, the Greek preposition huper, which is the preposition of substitution. And then we looked at the stronger preposition, the one on T, uh, and both of these communicate the idea of substitution. And it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for, that's huper, he died for us. He died in our place. This is the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. He bore the penalty for our sin. Substitutionary means he died in our place. He died in our place. But when we think about Christ going to the cross, we really should understand it in a very personal way, in the sense that Christ died for us. And when I think about the cross, I realize Christ died for me. Stephen Cook, he died for me. He bore my sin upon the cross. And we should understand his going to the cross in a very personal way. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says he died for our sins, for our sins. And 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And that communicates unlimited atonement as does Hebrews 2.9, which tells us that Christ tasted death for everyone. So we should see the death of Christ as personal, but we should also see it as purposeful. As 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the just, that's Jesus, that's Christ, the unjust, that's me, that's you, that's all humanity. But what was what was the what was the purpose that he might bring us to God? You see, so it's through the cross that we are reconciled to God. It is through the cross, and as Romans five ten puts it, that we might be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That we might be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And when we think about the cross. 
we should really see uh, two major attributes. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot going on there. Trust me, there's <laughs> to the cross is a, is a very busy place theologically speaking, and we're going to spend months. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be very exciting. I'm, I'm very much, but we're going to look at a lot of theological words related to the cross. We're we're really going to unpack a lot of this. But two major attributes uh, point at the cross. One attribute is God's righteousness, because when we think about the cross, we think about it as a place of judgment, and we should think of it that way because that's what it is. It is a place of judgment. God, the Father, is pouring out His wrath upon Christ, who is willingly going to the cross. He willingly lays down his life, and he bears the wrath of God. And so we should see the cross as a place of as of displaying God's righteousness towards sin. But we must also see the cross as a place of love. Love for me, love for you, Romans 5, 8. Why? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we think about the cross, again, it's there's there's complexity to it. But the cross is God's righteous solution to the problem of sin, as well as his greatest display of love toward sinners. You see, at the cross, God judged our sin as his righteousness required, and pardons the sinner as his love desires. Let me say that again. At the cross, God judged our sin as his righteousness required, and pardons the sinner as his love desires. And to understand the cross of Christ is to understand the heart of God over the fallen world that he wants to save. Again, to understand the cross of Christ is to understand the heart of God over the fallen world that he wants to save. And uh, remember that Peter makes it very clear uh, that it is the will of God that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what we're seeing here is we're going we're gonna to look at these uh, dimensions of the cross where we're going to see these attributes on display. Now, the word cross translates the Greek noun stauros, stauros, uh, which according to uh, Badag, which I cite quite often, it's the main lexicon that I go to. I have about eight or nine that I have in my, li in my library, so I reference others, but Badag is the one that I go to most often. And Badag is just a, a shortened a name for uh, the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. It's just a really long title, and I throw it out there, but uh, you know, when I in the future, when I say Badag, you know what I'm talking about. And a lexicon is just a dictionary, by the way. It's all it is. So the word cross translates the Greek noun stauros, which, according to Badag, refers to a pole to be placed in the ground and used for capital punishment, a cross. And the word crucify translates the Greek verb stauro, stauro which uh, means to fasten to a cross or to crucify, and that also is from Badag. Now, Crucifixion was not invented by the Romans. They just they just took it to the ultimate level. Uh, but the crucifixion was actually practiced by ancient cultures. It was practiced by the Egyptians, 
in which they would uh, hang a person on a tree. That was probably the earliest forms. It was also uh, celebrated or not celebrated. It was also practiced by the Persians, the Assyrians, and the Greeks. Now, the Assyrians, man, they were some nasty, nasty people. I mean, they were like ISIS on steroids. We think we have some bad people in our day, and we do. Trust me, we got some really horrible people. Uh, but the Assyrians and the Canaanites, they're, they're, both, uh, they're both pretty pretty bad people. Uh, but the Assyrians really took crucifixion uh, to a new level in their day. Uh, but by the time of Christ, by the time of Christ, the Romans had used crucifixion as a means of death more than previous cultures. And so the uh, the Romans had really taken it to the next level. And uh, John Stott, John Stott, who wrote a book, it's called The Cross of Christ. And uh, it's an interesting book. It's, uh, it's worth reading. It's a good book to have in your library. Uh, but John Stott, and here I'm quoting him, he says, quote, Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. He goes on, he says the victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons, end quote. And by the way, it's interesting to me, and I never thought about it until I was in seminary. I think it was my first or second year in seminary, but we were talking about the subject of the cross and the atonement, and, uh, it, and, it, and it came to my attention uh, the way, and of course, when you're studying, when you're in school and you're studying, you're you're trying to understand the Bible from the time and the culture within which it was written. And the cross was an extremely, extremely offensive thing. I mean, it was just horrific uh, to see people. And you might be walking out of town, and there might be uh, dozens of uh, criminals hanging on these crosses as you were coming in and out of town. And it was a, I mean, it was a, I mean, it communicated, you know, it lets you know, don't mess with the Romans, okay? Um. But, you know, today we wear crosses. People wear crosses. And I see people wear them, and I know what it means. They're communicating their Christianity. But if you go back to the first century, a first century Christian uh, would not wear a cross around their neck. Uh, today, that would be comparable to somebody today uh, wearing an electric chair around the neck. It was just something that just a person wouldn't do because of the offense of the image and uh, and people wear them today, and I understand we're we're far removed from it, and we've uh, and we've sterilized it, we've made it uh, uh, very clean. And I understand again, it's a symbol of Christianity, so I'm not altogether against it. But again, you have to interpret these things from the time and the culture within which it was written. Now, just prior to crucifixion, a person was scourged with a whip, which had thongs that were braided with sharp objects such as nails. Now, when you think about a scourge, you think about something comparable to like a cat of nine tails. It would have had uh, strips of leather that would have been braided. And in the braided leather, there would have been sharp objects like nails, uh, glass, maybe sharp bone or something. And they would take a person and they would strip them of their clothes, strip them naked. And they would tie them uh, to a stake uh, on the ground. And then they would proceed to whip them 
with the scourge. Now, the scourge, when it came down upon the flesh, these sharp objects would stick in the flesh uh, like little daggers, or it would tear the flesh. And sometimes, uh, after getting 39 lashes with a whip, it would expose uh, nerves, uh, blood vessels. I mean, it would literally tear the flesh away. Now, this also helped uh, 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 Satan uh, the suffering on the cross, because when a person hung upon the cross, when the arms were outstretched, physiologically, it would put pressure upon the ribs and it would make it very, very difficult to breathe. Now they would tie, they would nail your feet down. And of course your arms were, your arms were nailed in an outstretched position. And you would have to push up with your feet every time you wanted to take a deep enough breath to say something. Well, you're pushing up against your uh, feet that were driven, uh, that were attached to the cross via the nails, and your bloody back would be scraped against the wood every time you had to push yourself up to take a breath. So any movement upon the wood of the cross uh, would itself had added to the pain of the crucifixion. Now, as an act of public humiliation, Criminals carried their own cross to the place of execution, and once there, were stripped naked before being fastened to the cross, and they were fastened either with rope or nails. Now, being tied to a cross with rope, uh, with ropes, was less painful in the beginning, but would leave the victim to hang for a longer period of time, even days, which would make the experience more painful in the end. And uh, we have some record of people who were tied to a cross uh, who, ha who had lasted for up to nine days before they expired. Now, nailing a person to a cross was more painful from the beginning and would have led to a quicker death. The body would hang between three to four feet from the ground. Sometimes a soporific uh, drink was given to the victim to help numb the senses. The word soporific is a compound word. It means to make sleepy, literally. Uh, but a soporific uh, was given to the victim. What it was, was it was a form of anesthesia, and it was given as an act of mercy. It was given as an act of mercy. And in Jesus' case, in Mark 15, uh, 23, uh, we're told uh, that they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. But notice it says, but he did not take it. It says he did not take it. Uh, in this case, Jesus, uh, in Jesus' case, it was mine, a wine mixed with myrrh, uh, which the Lord rejected because it would have clouded his thinking. It would have clouded his thinking. And so again, we're told like in Matthew 27, 34, that he was unwilling to drink this soporific drink. Now, uh, let me pause for just a moment here. Uh, the movie Braveheart. Uh, good movie. I like it. I like Mel Gibson. He's a good actor. Uh, it's a good movie. But uh, he's, uh, at the end of that movie, I think he stole uh, this uh, imagery here. Because remember, when he's in the cell, and he's about to go before his executioner, and uh, the, 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 um, the princess comes in, she loves him, and, uh, and she comes to give him this drink. And she encourages him to take this drink because it will numb the pain. It will alleviate the pain and help him to face the suffering and he won't have to feel it physically. And Mel Gibson, in his role as Braveheart, he refuses the drink. 
if you remember the scene, it's a very, very captivating scene. It's very well done. Um, and his reasoning is, he says, it will numb my senses and I need all my wits about me. And uh, and I think he I think he I think he created that scene. I think he lifted it from from this understanding here, uh, because, again, it was one of those things where when Jesus was offered uh, when when the soporific was offered to him, uh, he rejected it uh, because, again, it would have clouded his thinking. So he was willing to feel the pain, but having his mind, his thoughts there uh, were very important. Now, in some situations, the Romans would break the victim's legs, which would hasten death. Uh, and what would happen is, is they would break the legs, uh, and uh, and I'm not a medical expert here, but from what I understand, it would cause the, the blood to coagulate, which would cause the heart to work that much harder. And what would happen is a person would eventually die uh, from heart failure. So in some situations, the Romans would break the victim's legs, which would hasten death, uh, but were told, according to Scripture, that Jesus was already dead by the time the soldiers considered doing this. Now, Merrill F. Unger, and here I'm citing from the Unger's uh, Bible Dictionary, uh, his section on the cross, he says, quote, in most cases, the body was allowed to rot on the cross by the action of the sun and rain, or to be devoured by birds and beasts, end quote. Now, we know that a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, came to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body that he might bury it, and we know that Pilate granted his request. It's very interesting, because in Matthew 27, 57, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, this man's a believer. Uh, and this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And then Joseph then takes the body, wraps it in clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out on the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Uh, now, it is most likely that Jesus was crucified in April of AD 33. Now, I have a footnote there, and I thought about whether or not to go into this. I decided not to, but there's a book I'm going to recommend. It's called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, written by Dr. Harold Honer. Harold Honer. It's called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And if you want to read most specifically pages 95 to 114, uh, he calculates the time of Christ's death, and uh, and he comes up with a date of April A.D. 33, and I think that that is the most likely date. There's always some debate amongst theologians. We're always fighting with each other about something. All these in-house debates, they're, they're quite exciting, fun, actually. There's always love, at least there is from my side, love and grace, uh, but... Um, you know, when there's a disagreement, they go their way. I'll go with God. Um, usually works out in the end. Um, but nonetheless, if you want to read my rationale for that, I recommend Harold Honer's Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. By the way, when it says A.D., A.D. does not mean after death. I used to think that. You know, you grow up and you think before Christ, after death. Okay, well, that makes sense, right? Well, A.D. is actually a shortened for Anno Domini. Uh, which is Latin. It means the year of our Lord. 
And Jesus Christ, uh, when he came into this world, he came into the world, and that was the year of our Lord. Well, guess what? He's still alive, so we are still in the year of our Lord, because he still continues on. Uh, but there. Uh, so going on in the notes here, the cross of Christ became central to the message of the gospel. It really became central to the message of the gospel. And the apostle Paul was sent by the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1.17 to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul was not concerned with human sophistry, winning arguments or impressing people, uh, impressing his audience by means of, of rhetorical prowess, but merely with presenting the simple message of the cross of Christ, which brings salvation, which brings eternal salvation to those who trust in Jesus, as their savior. Paul continued his line of reasoning in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24, where he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So again, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And really to understand what's going on at the cross, theologically, is just so profound. Um, and, and we're going to look at that. But again, to the, to the unbelieving world, it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And Paul says, and we preach, what do we preach? We preach Christ crucified. That's what we preach. He says to the Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. End quote. But we preach Christ crucified. That's what we preach. Now, Paul summarized his message when he said in 1 Corinthians 2 2, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, the image of a crucified Savior seems entirely foolish to a world that creates its saviors out of strong heroes. You know, I like watching movies, and I'm, I'm drawn into some of the uh, action movies, the superhero movies. They're, they're quite interesting, but that is typical. That is so typical of the world Savior that you have to have these superheroes that come in and save the world from some great threat, okay? And that's the picture that humanity sets forth. And by the way, the superheroes today are just today's modern version of the ancient Greek and Roman gods, which weren't gods. They were really just amplified humanity and really amplified humanity at his worst. But again here, the image of a crucified savior seems entirely foolish to a world that creates its saviors out of strong heroes strong in the human sense of one who can save himself and others. Now, Jesus is certainly strong. After all, he's God. And think about it. Uh, John 1, 3 makes it very clear that everything that has come into being, both in the invisible and the visible realm, was created by him. Colossians makes this very clear, that all things were, were created by him, for him, and through him. And so when you are reading Genesis chapter 1, 
which starts off with Bereshit, Bara Elohim, et HaShemayim, Va'et HaAretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is Jesus Christ. That is the second member of the Trinity right there creating everything, everything that has come into being. This is God who we're talking about here. And so he created everything, the heavens, that's the universe. And on the conservative side, when you think about the universe, we live in a galaxy where there are roughly 100 billion stars in just our galaxy. And there's roughly, on the shore, on the small end, over 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. It is just staggering to think about, just absolutely staggering to think about. And uh, as God, he brought all this into, into being. I mean, he created it. He simply spoke it into being. Uh, that he simply created all these things. So when we talk about strong, you're not getting anybody stronger than God. Excuse me, my voice is going out here. Uh, so again, Jesus is certainly strong. After all, he's God. And he does save forever. He is able to save forever those who come to him in faith. And we must come in faith. And we come with the empty hands of faith and we trust in Christ and Christ alone because man needs only Christ to be saved, nothing more. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And Acts 4.12 is very clear that there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus re replied, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so it's very simple. You simply believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it is by faith alone that we trust in Christ. It's not what he did and plus what we do. No, human works are gone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith does not save, Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive that salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ, who 2,000 years ago hung upon a cross, and when he hung between heaven and earth, all of our sins were placed upon him, and he was judged in our place, the just for the unjust. And the last thing he said on the cross was to tell us die. It is finished. Now, it was finished then, and it's finished now. Our salvation was finished at the cross. There's nothing, and I mean nothing, that we bring to our salvation. It was paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is offered to us freely. It's called free grace, freely uh, given as a gift to us. And if you have to pay for it at all, it ceases to be a gift. It's not a gift if you have to pay for it. It means you bought it. But it's a gift. It's a gift. And it's a precious gift. And it is a costly gift. It costs God his son. It costs Jesus Christ suffering upon the cross while he bore our sin. It is the most costly gift in, in all of the universe. And it is offered freely to us. And it is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so 
uh, he is able to save forever those who come to him in faith. That's how good our God is. And, uh, and the cross is an offense to those who are arrogant, to those who think that by human effort, they can somehow save themselves or bring themselves to God by some human effort. And the cross says, no, no. Human effort and pride is lost when one thinks about the cross. And so one must come in absolute humility uh, to the cross if one is going to receive the benefits of the cross. There's no place for pride. There's no place for the activity or the merit of man. None. It is only Christ who saves. And man needs only Christ to be saved. And I chased a rabbit trail there, but that's all right. It worked out well uh, because I'm going to finish my notes right there. So we're going to leave off there. And next week, when we come back, we're going to pick up and we're going to continue to talk about the crucifixion. And then we're going to hit all these other subjects, too. So this is going to be, again, very interesting, very interesting uh, discussions. Excuse me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father. And we know that we call you Father for one reason and one reason only. And that is because we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. And we have come with the empty hands of faith and we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone, believing that he died for us, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day, never to die again. And he accomplished for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For if we could save ourselves, then Christ would have never had to have come and died. But his death is a testimony of the fact of this thing which we cannot do. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift. It is your gift, your precious gift to us um, because of what Christ accomplished for us, and not based on human works at all. And Father, we are so thankful uh, for what you have done for us, for we know that you demonstrated your love for us, toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we are thankful. Oh, how we are thankful. And Father, we pray this evening as we close out this time uh, that in the days ahead that we will think on these things uh, that we have studied this evening. We pray that we will be challenged by them, Father, that we might understand you in a fuller and in a deeper way, and we might appreciate more and more our walk with you. Father, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.